Hey guys, welcome to the Jesus Name News Podcast. I'm Larry, got Derek here with me. And this week we are going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we talked about the death of Jesus on the cross. And this week being Easter season, we're going to continue with that narrative. We're going to go from the cross to Jesus's burial. And, you know, finally we're going to end up at his resurrection. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, I guess, first of all, there's, we're going to get into some controversial things about when the win of his burial and resurrection. Uh, but more importantly, I like to always start out with context. And so I just want to briefly read the, or John's account of the burial. Uh, and that's in John 19. Uh, 30 starts in verse 38. So after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So pretty much all these accounts are the same. In some way, shape, or form, they're at least similar enough for us to be like, this most likely happened. Um, I just simply chose John because he provides a few more details, uh, possibly, in my opinion, because he was present. You know, he was present at the cross with Mary, and Jesus says, son, behold thy mother, and mother, behold thy son. So I personally feel like John was there. Um, So let's just break down some of what he says. So let's start with Joseph of Arimathea. I'm not going to get into who he was because that is an episode by itself. You know, (laughs) one thing about this, I I, I always forget that Nicodemus is explicitly stated in scripture to have been a follower of Jesus. Yeah. and And that's something that I think we need to take note of because I hear preachers even today, they're like, we don't know what happened to Nicodemus. Yes, we do. He was a follower. Yeah. I mean, we might not know like a ton of details necessarily, but like John makes it clear that Nicodemus was one of the followers who buried Jesus's body, which they knew definitely would not have been seen well by the council. For sure. So Joseph, is called a secret disciple. Uh, the other gospels, though, tell us that he was a member of the council, which we would know as the Sanhedrin. Um, so that that being said, this means that he was likely present, or actually Luke, in Luke 23, uh, verse 50 and 51 says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So that Luke actually says Joseph was at the trial and he disagreed with the council. Sounds like he was basically on an island, probably with Nicodemus. Um, So, and what's interesting about that is, you know, we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week but what's interesting is that by coming by night and taking jesus the priests were breaking their law and it seems like joseph and nicodemus were probably the only two that really were like hey this is not right (laughs) we're we're not doing the right thing here um but even more than that, what's interesting to me is that Joseph has to go to Pilate. And Mark actually says, when Pilate heard of it, Pilate was like, Gee, he's already dead. 
you know, because crucifixion was a process that was supposed to take days, not hours. Well, we know that they had, they broke the legs of the thieves to make them die quicker, but Jesus was already dead. They didn't have to break his bones. They had to do anything. So Pilate was surprised that he was dead. Um, so we called a centurion over. He's like, is he really dead? And the centurion was like, yep, <laughs> he stuck him with a spear. He's dead. So Pilate, though, gives permission because of the Jewish tradition of, you know, first of all, burying a body within the day, um, but also because the Passover was coming and they didn't want these dead bodies on a tree or on a cross, you know, whatever you view there. So uh, it was a tree. Yeah. <laughs> but. It was a cross beam attached to a tree. Yeah. So, but also he set guards there to ensure that there was no funny business with the disciples coming to take the body away. Can I just say that, like, you know, I feel like sometimes we give Pilate, like, grief for putting guards there. Right? It was just really, like, like, it was a good political decision. But I'm saying, like, just thinking about this, right? Okay, like, I know that this was Jesus. This was the Messiah who was really the Messiah and was really going to rise from the dead. But in the ancient world, men claiming to be Messiahs and claiming that they're going to rise from the dead wasn't exactly uncommon. No. And so, like there for sure would have been protocols in place for what you do when you have this crazy rebel preacher saying he's going to rise from the dead. Well, and, and not only that, imagine, imagine something does happen. He does rise from the dead and he is this political insurrectionist. I mean, imagine the situation that comes about there, because now you've got all Judea coming after you, <laughs> and it already yeah, wants. But I mean, there's also the argument that if he really does rise from the dead, you'd almost kind of want to know it, because even from a secular point of view, like you gar- you verified, like you stuck this dude in the chest, and he bled out after he was already dead. Like yeah. he was dead, dead. If that dude walks out of the tomb, everyone in the world's gonna want to know about it. Right. Like, like, this is a big deal. And so, like, I don't know. I just I feel like we give Pilate grief for putting guards there. Like it was this horrible thing that he did. And I just I don't really think it was it wasn't done out of spite and it wasn't done out of even lack of belief necessarily. No. It was just done because we don't give credit to how common of an occurrence people claiming to be some of the things Jesus was back then was. And the amount of grief that his followers could have simply by taking hold of a dead body after their leader had died. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way. like The way that we have people going around saying they're prophets nowadays yeah. is comparable to how the Messiah was back in well, those days. I mean, not that we're not. I thought they're the same, but like. a political podcast, but let's be real here, guys. Well, there there's a couple hundred people who camped out and are camping out on some level in Dallas, still waiting for John F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy Jr. to appear. JFK is 105 years old. If he's still alive, which by the way, he's not, they verified the dude was dead. Pretty hard to fake what was on that tape. So yeah. Um... But, but what I'm saying is that like, like, this even in the modern world there's people claiming that their quote-unquote messianic figures are still alive and and so like in the ancient world that only would have been an even more powerful claim because there'd be even less evidence well and not only that it was a much more it was a much more spiritually motivated world Yes. And less of a factual driven. Well, I say factual very loosely, I guess, nowadays, but <laughs> factual driven world. But either way, 
I just found it weird that first of all, pilot pilot gave them permission knowing what was supposed to happen. Like I believe it was the priest that actually came to him and said, Hey, like you need to set guards up over there. But beyond that, like what, uh, I don't, I don't really understand kind of his thought process here because if Jesus, he knew, he knows Jesus was innocent, but his thought process seems to me is more of an appeasement to the Jews and less of a bone thrown to Joseph. Yeah. That's really what it was about. Well, and the other thing is, is I, I feel like people knew, right. Cause like, didn't, didn't the council say, like he said on the third day that he would rise or something like they knew that all they had to do was make sure the dude stayed dead for three days. <laughs> Like, it wasn't like the guards needed to stand guard over this dead body for, you know, 20 years. They just had to stay there for like a week and be like, yep, dude's still dead. We're good. Out. Yeah, that's, that's a 2000 year old L, by the way. Um, <laughs> but either way. Oh, yeah. yeah, but I'm just saying, like, it, it wasn't like Pilot thought the guards had to be stationed there forever. Yeah, I mean, he, he knew that it was going to be a very brief assignment. Uh, well, he thought it would be. Yeah. So, I, you know, I guess it was. <laughs> so then it was shorter turns, than they thought. Yeah, way shorter. <laughs> they Spoilers. figured a week. Uh, <laughs> but then enters Nicodemus into John's narrative. And Nicodemus is the man who we all know asked Jesus how to be born again. Uh, you know, how do you enter into your mother's womb a second time? But Nicodemus does something pretty notable. You know, he brings anywhere between 75 pounds and 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So if I work out, I've lifted weights, I have played athletic sports, 100 pounds, you know, and he's probably carrying this two to three, maybe even five miles. Try doing that for five miles. So he probably had a donkey of some sort or possibly a servant of some sort carrying this. So why that's a lot of weight, man. I got I got a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and combined, they're about 90 to 100 pounds. Yeah, that's rough. And every once in a while, like I'll be holding my six-year-old and my three-year-old's like hold me up, and I'm just like, all right, I think I might be able to get you up. And I'm just like, oh like it does not last, man. Like, yeah, I mean, this is a significant amount of myrrh. Yeah. why myrrh? Why, why bring that? So, first of all, myrrh is used in ancient times as a very expensive perfume. Um, more explicitly what it is, it was a gum resin from a small thorny tree, which was harvested by repeatedly, and this is the exact scientific words, repeatedly wounding trees to bleed the gum, which coagulates quickly. So seeing the imagery there, uh, Beyond that, though, today it is used in mouthwashes and toothpaste and may be applied to minor cuts and bruises to help with the healing process. Um, In the Hebrew Bible, Moses actually had to use liquid myrrh as a core ingredient in the sacred anointing oil that went in the tabernacle. Um, And, you know, myrrh was rare in Jesus' day, but it's even more rare in Moses' day. So, again, are you seeing all this symmetry building up? It's it's a it's an anointing oil. It's wounded a tree, bleeding. Was myrrh used normally to bury people? I'm getting there. Okay. So in the New Testament, it's given to Mary and Joseph, and given in a mixture of wine when Jesus was on the cross to numb the pain and prolong the dying process. Then it was brought by Nicodemus to anoint the body of Jesus. So back to Larry's question, was this a typical thing? Yes. Uh, ancient e- Egyptians probably used myrrh in the in part of their embalming processes uh, because it has the ability to dry up moisture and prevent worms from generating, which supposedly kept the bodies incorrupt. So Thinking back to Psalm 16, you know, 
you yes. really like but I guess ancient Egyptians, like they, I mean, I know that there's connections because the Israelites came out of Egypt, but they probably learned it from them. Yeah, but I mean, like, do we know what a typical burial looked like in like first century Israel? Of a, I mean, this is this is something that routinely happened. You okay. would wrap the body several in several layers of linen, and each layer you would put myrrh and aloe. And typically, from what I've seen, it was yes, you can go with this embalming process, but most likely they were trying to cover up the scent of just a rotting human body um, because these were often in a lot of these bodies were often just laid in common graves. You know, people couldn't afford, you know, a, a tomb. And if you could, you were rich. So you just have a common grave site. Um, think the catacombs. Well, yeah, I mean, and we're hitting that point nowadays because there ain't no graveyard space left on Earth. It's true. Um, so also, though, in Jesus' time, and this is where it gets significant. Also, though, in Jesus' time, murder was extremely expensive, like possibly being of higher value than gold. Wow. So think about 75 to 100 pounds. Nicodemus bought all this myrrh to put onto the body of Jesus. First of all, dude's rich. Second of all, such a large amount would indicate that Nicodemus and Joseph both had immense respect and love for Jesus. So... Again, to those people who were like, we don't know what happened to Nicodemus. Yes, we do. He became a follower. So uh, I was interested. Gold per pound is about 20-ish thousand dollars. In today's money. In today's money. So if he's got 70 pounds of that, that's what? $1.4 million? In today's money, yes. In today's money. I mean, I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm just to put it in perspective, like I know things aren't exactly straight across equivalent, but like it, considering that Judas was all critical of the woman breaking the ointment on Jesus when it was, by the way, was myrrh. Yeah, but it was like, that was like what one year's wage yeah right but this much myrrh would have been many times that several lives worth wages and and that's why i say a lot people that say we don't know what happened nicodemus you're wrong you don't just bring this much myrrh this so it's this it's incredibly rare incredibly expensive perfume to someone that you don't really know or care about nicodemus in my opinion him doing this and i'm we're probably going to do a whole episode on joseph a whole episode on nicodemus but in my opinion nicodemus probably it it appears to me was very close to jesus in my opinion um, because you, you don't do this sort of thing for people you're not close to, um, or have respect for and love for. So ultimately though, Jesus, or sorry, Nicodemus and Joseph bind and wrap the body of Jesus, laying the body in a tomb. So it can be, like I said, assume that both of them follow Jesus very closely, Je- you know, just by their actions. So the burial fulfilled a key piece of prophecy, which can be found in Isaiah 53 9. And in the resurrection episode, which we'll do, you know, next week or as a bonus episode. But in the resurrection episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about Isaiah 53. But this week, we're looking particularly at verse 9, where it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Uh, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So main thing is as a man, 
this was out of Jesus' control. There are a lot of things that are in Jesus' control when he's alive and fulfilling prophecy. But when he dies, the, the spear, his bones not being broken, um, the tomb, none of that was is within that Jesus the man. None of that is within his control. Has to be divinely ordered. So Mark also says, though, um, that, you know, in regards to this burial, Joseph of Arimathea is a respected member of the council who is himself looking for the kingdom of God. Took courage, went to Pilate, and asked the body of Jesus. Luke uh, also says that uh, Joseph is looking for the kingdom of God. So it can be assumed that Nicodemus and Joseph had spent copious amounts of time in the scroll of Isaiah 53. Okay, so this is my thing. Now, I know that there's some that say that Luke is ripping off Mark on some level. Right. Right. And so that could be why they're repeating this looking for the kingdom of God thing. But at the same time, clearly they're implying something about him with this. And I don't, I don't even think it's some as simple as Joseph followed Jesus. Yeah. Is there like a sect of the Pharisees or a sect of Jews that were looking explicitly for some kingdom? Like, is he, what is the reference that they're trying to make when they say, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. That's interesting, you know, and um, that's something that maybe we, we need to look into and figure out, look into and figure out. Cause I didn't really even take that into account. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've never like, I, and I, this is one of the things I love about this is like, there's so many things that come up when we come together. Um, but like, yeah, like reading this, I'm just like, who also himself looking for the kingdom of God, like, wait, He's saying something about him. And if it was just he was a follower of Jesus, I feel like he would have said that. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, if he was a believer, he just would have said that. Right. And, you know, I, I would assume so. And maybe this is influenced by the chosen a little bit, but it really does seem like when Nicodemus coming to Jesus by not, and you have Joseph and Nicodemus kind of having this seemingly close friendship and, you know, mutual respect of Jesus. It seems like both of them were becoming a little disillusioned with the council. And they're starting to see like the council is less about the kingdom and more about preserving itself. That's what I see and take from it. Uh, you know, that's just me looking at it as a human who has been in those situations where I've become disillusioned with things. So now, is Nicod- does that mean that, oh, well, like in The Chosen, it shows Nicodemus just having these internal struggles and constant battles within himself? Does that, I don't know, but... Does that mean that that really was going on? I don't know. But I do feel like looking for the kingdom of God, at least at the implies that they were recognizing, you know, because think about it. Jesus called out the Pharisees and the Sadducees multiple times. Guess who was among those? Joseph and Nicodemus. Yeah. So they're still following Jesus despite this, and they're hearing Jesus say this, and a lot. He's right. You know, we we are going to the temple and praying so people can see us. We are making sure that we wear these long robes and look the best so that people can see us. He's realizing that it's more about stature among men than it is about stature with God, and I think that. I think that that's an interesting thought process and it really, that's why I'm like, I really want to do another episode on deconstruction because 
I feel like Nicodemus and Joseph were going through a form of that in the ministry of Jesus. So, however, there are a few discrepancies between the Gospels about the tomb, mainly from Matthew, surprisingly. So, Matthew says it was Joseph's tomb. Mark and Luke both say it's cut out of stone. No one had been laid there yet. John says it's near where Jesus was crucified in a garden and, you know, at a convenience, they lay in there. Matthew is the only one that attributes the tomb to Joseph. So my feelings are that, you know, John, I, I think taking it a step further, again, I think that shows us John was there. Why they did it, John was there. So he's basically, Jesus is basically laid in a tomb out of convenience. And I would say there's not really a whole lot. We can argue, well, this bleeds back into uh, Isaiah 53 and Nicodemus and, you know, um, Joseph are probably reading the book of Isaiah 53, the scroll. And because it's generally assumed to be about the Messiah. Yeah. But I think simply this is divine order. Well, yeah, I was going to say, but like when we get start getting into that, like they were reading Isaiah 53 and they went, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, then some rich, bad people associated with bad people need to bury him. So we should go do it. Well, like, and, and I'm that's. I, I get what you're saying. And I'm like, I totally see people saying that, but it's like you start getting into some slippery slopes of like, so we're just assuming they were purposely trying to fulfill things. No. And, that, and that's why. I'm and and I, I know you're not saying that, but I'm saying like, I could see people saying that. Yeah. No, and but... that just, that that's always for me, that's always a non-starter. Like, yeah, it is. And... If that's your, if that's your argument against something like, and I, I think that it was probably Joseph's tomb, but I also think that I think at the same time it was done out of convenience, not necessarily because lay him in my tomb. It hasn't had anyone lay there yet. It's because, dude, this is the day of preparation. It's like 4 p.m. Sunset is in about two hours. Yeah. <laughs> like we need to get He's this gotta done. go someplace so that yeah because that's how it always read to me even if it is joseph's it was more just the body's gotta go someplace so that we can move it in a few days when the sabbaths are over and that's where and that's where i kind of go off onto a tangent here so First of all, it says that it was done out of convenience because it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath is coming. So first of all, let's lay this foundation. Days in Judy in the Hebrew calendar are not days in the the Gregorian calendar. It is not, you know, in in the Hebrew calendar, it is night day, not day night. Um, They believe that the day starts at sunset and ends at sunset so that being said what is the day of preparation quite simply it's the day before the sabbath uh fridays in particular were known as days of preparation so for all of you good friday argue arguments or you know apologists out there good for you however this day of preparation is important. Do you know why? Because it was for Passover, right? Yeah, Passover. Yeah, there's Passover. And guess what? Passover is a high holy day. Yeah. Which is a special Sabbath, the annual Sabbath. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and that was what the... Well, that's always confused me, too, because they say the Last Supper was their Passover Seder. Seder? Seder? Well, there's like a meal that you have before that, before Passover. But, like, if 
Passover was so if Passover is the day after Jesus died, right? Yep. So then the oh no, because the Last Supper was after sundown. Yep. So it was it was still the, Wednesday. The Last Supper was the beginning of the day of preparation for the Passover. Yep. Which is why the Seder happened on that day. Yep. Am I saying that right? Yes. Okay. Good enough, anyway. It's not a tree. Yeah. So I keep telling myself in my head, it's not a tree. So <laughs> that brings me to this. And you'll notice that I said, Good Friday apologist. You have your argument with days of preparation are typically Fridays. However, three days means three days. And I'm a hardliner on that, um, as is very many prominent theologians, uh, especially in mine and Larry's particular denomination. So uh, I, I, I heard an interesting sermon on this or teaching on this one time from one of those very well-respected men in our denomination. And he actually is the one that brought this to my mind um, or, you know, put it at the forefront and made me realize like that's what's happening. So let's start here. Passover is the 15th day of Nisan. Okay. On the 14th day of Nisan, which is the first Jewish month, Jesus after sundown, on Nissan 14, which would have been a Wednesday for us, Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples and in- instituted the new covenant symbols. Okay. Um, I just want to clarify. Okay, so just for those who might not know, and and for me who's not fully clear, Jewish months are always 28 days, right? They go off. A lunar calendar. They yeah. go off the lunar calendar, so they're 28 days, right? Roughly, yeah. 27, 29. Or, and then and then they add an extra month every few years yep. to even out leap years. Yep. Okay. And so okay. That's all. <laughs> so and that that's where we end up with the weirdness of Easter. Uh, and yeah. the different times, but either way, uh, so Wednesday is the day of preparation before the annual Sabbath, not the weekly Sabbath. Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples, institutes these new symbols, do this in remembrance of me, you know, taking the bread, drinking the wine, you know, washing each other's feet, which if you want to do that, go for it. I personally am not a feet person. So Later, super clean compared to their feet too just to be clear like like being grossed out by modern american feet when thinking of like the gross feet that jesus would have been cleaning yeah no yeah. it's just it's a whole nother level of dirty what he did not yeah. not that it was wrong i'm clear just to be clear i'm not saying it was wrong but just no, it, 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 we're talking the about nice, dirty. the grossest American feet are probably nice compared to the feet that he was cleaning for sure. So <laughs> later that on Nissan 14, probably close to midnight, 11 PM, somewhere in there. Uh, Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested and brought before the high priest again by night. with staves and spears ready to come take jesus away and have this trial which is breaking jewish law Mm -hmm. so then jesus is crucified at about 9 a.m that wednesday nissan 14 dies around 3 p.m and so he has six hours on the cross and around 4 p.m somewhere in there 5 p.m. We can say that Jesus' body was placed in the tomb just before sunset, which would have marked the high holy day. Okay. So 
Thursday. It's the first, it's Nissan 15, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows the day of preparation. So this is the first day or first night and first day of Jesus' time in the tomb. Okay. Friday, Nissan 16 would have been another day of preparation. The women, this is where the women bring those spices for anointing Jesus' body after the Sabbath and before the weekly Sabbath, uh, which fits very nicely with, I believe it is, um, I believe it's in Matthew. But um, then you come to the weekly Sabbath. The women rested on the Sabbath day, which I believe is found in Luke 23 and 56. And then Jesus on that Sunday rose after exactly three days and three nights in the tomb, fulfilling the sign of Jonah and authenticating the sign he gave his, he gave of his Messiahship. So then on that Sunday, at daybreak at sunrise which would have been Nissan 18 the women brought the spices while it was still dark Jesus was already risen and the soldiers are unconscious and the angels greet the women at the tomb so I did some research about are there any possible years that this fits? There is, actually. And that year is 31 AD. Uh, Passover would have been on a Thursday. It would have, you know, it would have, you would have had, uh, that day of preparation on Wednesday, Jesus would have died on that Wednesday. So a Passover on Wednesday or Thursday is the only day of the week that works with the biblical accounts of the crucifixion because Jesus was in the grave three days, three nights. Matthew, which is from Matthew 12 and 40. So from Wednesday, just before sunset to Saturday, just before sunset, is three days and three nights. The fact that the day following Jesus' crucifixion was a Sabbath, which is signified in Mark 15 and 42, Luke 23, 53 through 54, and John 19 and 31, does not prove he was born, he was crucified on a Friday. That that's false. According to the law, Moses, the day following Passover, which is also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, is also. So. Okay. So. So the Passover would be Wednesday into Thursday. Thursday into Friday is the day between. Friday into Saturday is the weekly Sabbath Saturday into Sunday is the day he rose. Yes. So That's he died technically on Thursday. No. He died technically on Wednesday at Wednesday. 9 a.m. Three days, three nights. Okay. Yeah. So, and you may ask, well, why does that even matter? Because Jesus said it. That's why it matters. If he said it, that's what that's what happened. And I understand why we do Good Friday, and I, I, I appreciate the symbolism of Good Friday, okay? I want to be very clear about that. I appreciate that symbolism. However, that is only one and a half days. And people say, oh, well, it's from his crucifixion to his, to his, you know, resurrection. No, that's not, that's not the sign of Jonah. That's, that's not what he said. 
Three days, three nights. Okay, and so and and I know part of it is is that it said Paul wrote in First Corinthians that he rose again on he rose again the third day, right? Yep. But here's the thing, right? They went to the tomb on Sunday morning, our calendar. Yep. Right, and he was already risen. Yep. So, like. It, the story is never saying the point that Jesus rose. However, he didn't really rise Sunday morning. He rose Saturday night. Yeah, we would consider it Saturday. Well, it, it would have been. Well, some point between Friday night and sat, Sunday morning, Jesus rose. We don't know when. It could be true that he rose sometime on Saturday. On the Sabbath. Well, that would have. That's not fulfilling scripture, though. Well, yeah, but I'm saying like, but I'm saying I'm I'm I guess I'm going with what Paul's saying. In first Corinthians, right. I, I I'm, I'm trying to work the logic of what Paul's saying with what Jesus said about three days and three nights. And I think he referenced Jonah, too, which means it had to have been three days and three nights because that was very clear. It was three days and three nights. Well, my my point with what is the exact verbiage that Paul uses for that? On the third day. On the third day. So, he says, and he was buried, and then he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So, and what you have there is three days. So, if we count that Thursday is a day, you know, even that nissan 14 or 15 sorry nissan 15 is a day nissan 16 is a day saturday is a day sunday morning which again saturday night would technically be a new day yeah for the jews so what we would consider saturday night is a new day for the jews yeah well yeah i think either way i mean I guess what I'm saying is I could the thing that makes the whole Wednesday fit more than anything else is just simply that there is very clearly a Sabbath that the the three men on the cross had to die to get off the crosses before. Yeah, because they wouldn't have done that for a weekly Sabbath. But even if they would have, it doesn't matter because there's clearly a day between after that Sabbath before another Sabbath. There's, there's explicitly two Sabbaths. Yep. That only works if it's Wednesday that he dies. Yep. However you want to interpret what Paul is saying in first Corinthians and all of that other stuff that all, it all comes down to the fact that the only day that fits the timeline that the Bible actually gives us when you take everything into account is Wednesday. Yes. That's it. That's the, and again, people are like, well, why does this matter? It's just days because it's fulfilling scripture. It's fulfilling prophecy. It's fulfilling. And if it is part of being the Messiah, it matters. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, is on some level, it it matters because it's fulfilling scripture. But at the at the same time, like nobody is going to go to hell because they disagree on which day of the week Jesus died 2000 oh. years later when we don't have a record of this. Now, if it was like 34 AD and you were there when Jesus died and you're arguing about which day of the week he died on when you were present we might have an argument that you're not, you don't have the level of comprehension to understand what's going on or something. Right. But like 2000 years later, when we didn't keep an explicit record of this, which was probably done on purpose on some level, it it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but to understand it on some level, there is understanding that comes from knowing small details like this. And thus, it's important to know the small details. That doesn't mean every Christian needs to be up on every minor detail, but there comes a point in scholarship and in knowledge and in wisdom and understanding that we need to understand the small details. 
Yeah, and, and it's simply because there are people out there that will use this to discredit the Bible. Yes. And there's a clear year that fits. There's a, and while it does put Jesus being 35, I'll be honest with you, there's nothing in the Bible that says he was 30 when he started his ministry. So, yeah, and there's nothing in the Bible that says that Jesus ministered for three and a half years. That's done by making assumptions because John circles back to events that happened in Jerusalem three times. Yes. And, but John, John's gospel is not in chronological order. Well, and every major scholar will tell you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all read and happen within a year. Yeah. Usually like you may find the rogue one out there, but that you'll find to agree with you and you know, your point of view. But the fact is that the majority disagree with that. Yeah. And does that make this any less viable? No, it's just simply no scripture. Yeah. You know, part of it is what, what, God told Ezekiel, eat the word. Yeah. Yeah. Understand what God is trying to do, what he, you know, because the Bible from, we, we just got finished with Genesis and talking about creation from creation to the gospels. It is all leading up to that moment. Yeah. Every single part of it. And if we're, if we're, unwilling to try to just understand what God is trying to speak to us and, and understand the story. And I say story, you know, with all reverence, the story that God we weaved. Yeah. in redeeming his creation, but there's so much beauty wrapped up in just knowing the details. Yeah. And it's important to know the details and get them right because, you know, we've brought up deconstruction a couple of times in this episode and we've talked about it in the past and it's something that's going to keep coming up because it's a big thing right now. And the reality is, is that one of the things that hurts people who go through those moments of doubt that cause deconstruction and that causes their deconstruction to push them out of the church is the fact that we through tradition and through other things, repeat things that disagree with the Bible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the idea of, you know, they thought God was so holy. So they banned writing his name. Well, eventually, you know, right. No, before knew it. The quote unquote, 400 years of silence. Eventually, they couldn't even say his name. So it really goes back to tradition and things can sometimes pull us further away from the truth rather than drawing us toward it. You know, there there are good things about tradition, but there are also some things that we need to understand in the modern world. We are very factually driven. We got to make sure that we are we have facts to give people because, and that's not saying, well, the gospel is all you need. Yeah. For the 1950s. But in that, I think we just, we need to realize that just because somebody's going, but that's not factual. Why am I listening to you? That's not their problem. If you're giving them bad information and they call you on that bad information and that makes them not trust you. That's your fault. Yes. That's not their fault. That's not their lack of faith. It's not our job to tell people that we're allowed to lie to them for the gospel. And that if they don't believe our lie, even though we know it's not true or we should know it's not true, that somehow that's their lack of faith. Even if that lie is thousands of years old. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. If we're preaching untruth, it's bad. That's false doctrine. That's false. Like, like I have so much respect. I, you know, I, I preach sometimes, you know, and, and I do things that I I feel are preaching that maybe aren't sometimes, 
that aren't always called that sometimes. And the thing is, is that when you're doing these things, when you're presenting people with the gospel, when you're presenting them with God's word, it is so important that what you say is true. Because if there is one thing that the Bible is very, very clear on, is that preaching false doctrine in the name of God, in the name of God is a very, very bad thing. That's what, that's what adding to the word really means in revelation. Yeah. Where you're representing God having said something that is just not what he said or is not true. You know, people say, well, they're these different translations add to the word and they're all going to go to hell. No, they're not. That's not what add to the word means. Mm-hmm. First of all, that's a translation. And if you want to go down that route, then that means that the Philippine translation, the Spanish translation are all false. Yep. And what adding to the word or taking away from the word means is what we're talking about. Attaching God's name to things that are not true omitting things that god said is true and that that's my point like you can sit here and tell me well that's just not a salvational issue yes but for someone it could be yep for someone this could be the stumbling block that causes them to be like i just can't believe this anymore because it's just not factually right and what did jesus say about the one who's a stumbling block to his brother Better to have a millstone hang around his neck than cast into the ocean. Yeah. So I, I mean, and, and and so that's why I I'm, you know, sometimes people think I'm very anal about this stuff. Like I'm very whatever, you know. And and I'm just like, no, I, I just I want the truth, not because I have to be right or because of anything like any kind of arrogance or pride. I want the truth because. It's literally the only thing that matters. Like God's truth is the most valuable thing that exists. And if Jesus dying on Wednesday is God's truth, that makes it valuable. Yes. And that's why it's important. Now, there are things more important, sure. Like, guess what? one piece of gold is not the most important piece of gold in the world, but it still has a whole bunch of value, you know? And, and that's why we talk about these things and that's why they're important. And so, so yeah, we, you know, thank you for being with us. Thank you for, for listening to us talk about the burial of Jesus. And we're so excited next time to talk about the resurrection, the greatest event that has ever happened yeah you know people talk about the cross and the cross is certainly amazing and gave us redemption but the resurrection is where the power comes yes so we're looking forward to that check us out everywhere you hear your podcasts see you guys next week see you next week